When Paul writes to the saints at Philippi, it is a letter written to some of his dearest friends, and it is a letter to a young local church that was birthed through the power of the gospel and is sustained by the power of the gospel and whose only hope for the future is found in the gospel. This is Philippians, and we are Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Today we're going, I don't normally tell, it's like talk about the title of the sermon because you guys can read, uh, but I'm calling it Curious Conduits for the Gospel. We're going to see two of them in particular. Curious Conduits for the Grace of the Gospel, if you wanted to have an even longer title, which would be even more clarifying if it said that. Curious Conduits for the Grace of the Gospel, and here's what the two of them are. We'll put the cards on the table. If you may have noticed or, or have begun to maybe form or have a good guess as to what they might be. The first one's fairly obvious because Paul's in prison suffering. This is relevant to us. It's genuinely relevant to us. I mean, just even in the last couple years, I've experienced or watched other people experience the death of a parent that's suffering. I, I did a funeral for a gentleman who uh, overdosed on drugs and watched the, in the wake of that the family suffering. We have friends who were on the mission field and they had uprooted their entire life to place them, put themselves in another place to do medical work. And uh, for no good reason, the mission organization dropped them just a few months back. And now they're, they had sold their home, they'd sold all their stuff, they'd left the country, and it's a season of suffering and questioning and, and doubt, busted relationships. Like, like, how are you suffering? How is it that the people you know are suffering? Like, you probably don't have to think very long, and, I do, and don't think dramatically. Like, don't think, like, the mo, like, don't think only cancer or death. We tend to maybe go places like that with suffering, okay? And those are moments of suffering. But suffering comes to all of us. Where are you suffering, and, 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 or how are the people close to you suffering? Now, the other one doesn't really go well together. It's not like peanut butter and jelly. It's more like peanut butter and bananas, right? Like some people get how it goes together, but not as many... <laughs> as who get peanut butter and jelly, right? Like, it's not as obvious peanut butter and banana is not as obvious as peanut butter and jelly. So narcissism is the other curious conduit of gospel grace. Isn't that interesting? People sell out of selfish ambition. You're going to play it out. Paul has the utmost sympathy for those experiencing that and the utmost condemnation for those who act in narcissism, but what he also says is the gospel's not stopped by it. That even in narcissism or selfish leadership, the gospel can still be advancing. I don't know how many of y'all listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Narcissism brought down an entire mega church in, in uh, Seattle, Washington. I don't know if you saw the documentary uh, on Hillsong and the, the issues that happened there. Again, I mean, these are mega churches. A few years ago, uh, a CEO named Steve Timmis, a CEO of Acts 29 Church Planning Network, was accused of bullying. 
and uh, was forced to step down from being CEO of that network. I don't know if you know names like Perry Noble or James McDonald or Ravi Zacharias, and we could go on and on with the list Christian leaders, right? Who, because of self-absorption and selfishness and their own desire for their own fame and their own brand to be advanced, it brought a mess upon a whole lot of people. Maybe you've met that type of leader. Maybe even you've been hurt by this type of leader. You have wounds from that type of leader. I feel you deeply on that. And today, with frail hands, right, with aching hearts, with wounded spirits, in our drowning sometimes, and in our pain sometimes, in suffering or in the wake of church hurt, we cling to something. That's what Paul's saying. He's not ignoring the pain. He's not ignoring the suffering. He's not ignoring the wounds. But he's saying there's something you can cling to in the midst of it, and that's this reality. The gospel cannot be stopped by suffering or narcissism. And you could keep going with the list, right? Like if There could be other curious conduits of, of, gracious, of the grace of the gospel. But it can't be stopped by either of these two that he talks about in this section, suffering or narcissism. In fact, even more so, sometimes by God's rich grace, oftentimes by God's rich grace, the gospel actually accomplishes its purposes through suffering and through narcissism. Not as an excuse for those things or a flippant disregard of those things, but as a reality to the supreme power of the of the gospel. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. He starts with suffering. Verse 12, he says, I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You have to know the context to know what his claim is. He's going to give his receipts here in just a second. But verse 12 is the claim. What's happened to me, I, Paul, want you, saints at Philippi, to know that what has happened to me, being in prison, that's where he's at, he's in Rome, in prison for the sake of the gospel. He'll spend at least two years in prison. He's about two more years away from, according to church tradition, having his head cut off and his life ending for the sake of the gospel. So that's Paul, right? Like, that's where Paul is at. He is in the midst of a season of suffering, captivity. But he says it has served to advance, to progress the gospel. It's a bold claim that in the failing, what would feel like ministry failure, Paul doesn't get to preach the gospel anymore. He was, the, he was one of the best players we had on the team. Now he's in prison. Seems like failure. It feels like a certain and uh, definite loss to be without him. His suffering, his chains, he says they're actually being used by God to advance the gospel. It shouldn't be surprising to us that this is the case intellectually. Now, don't, again, don't hear me saying that to your spirit. Takes a while for the spirit and the heart to catch up. But intellectually, that shouldn't be a surprise to us if we know scriptures, because in 1 Peter 3 18, it says, For Christ also suffered, he suffered. The king of it all suffered. 
once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The greatest thing to happen for the children of God, the death of Jesus on the cross, was suffering for Jesus. But what it accomplished was the advance of the gospel into my heart and into your heart. That's the reality. That's God's MO, by the way. You read this book, it's filled with people who suffer. And in their suffering, God is accomplishing great and extraordinary things. Paul gives the receipts. Verse 13, he says, The advance of the gospel, this is how I've seen it, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's in Rome. Most likely, people believe that he's in Rome. Those who, it could have been somewhere else, but it's almost certainly historically believed to have been Rome because the imperial guard is there. This is the the, the top dogs, right? The ones who would have, have been closest to Caesar at most times, right? This is the, the special forces, if you will, whatever, however, whatever analogy you want to use. But so he's there in their presence. They're the ones guarding him. They're the ones keeping him in prison. And all of them know at this point that he's there for the sake of Jesus. The imperial guard knows that he's there because death is gain when you're walking with Christ. Because suffering is a part of following after Jesus and it's worth his life to do so. But if you go forward and consider this a sneak peek, When he closes the letter, this is the next to last verse in the whole letter. He says this in uh, chapter 4, verse 22. It's not just that they know that he's suffering for Jesus. As he closes out his letter, he's talking about all the people that greet, everybody who says hi to them in Philippi. And in verse 23, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Don't blow past that. The suffering of the saints is spilling out of Caesar's household. That's where it's originating from oftentimes. That's where it's spilling out from. It's in the face of Roman soldiers and in the faces of uh, angry Jewish, like these are kind of the two main enemies of the gospel at this time, and then it's spilling out of Caesar's household, but, but yet God's saving people. Gordon Fee, who has an excellent commentary on the book of Philippians, says this, speaking of Paul, and I love this. He says, let him, let Paul loose, and he will be among those who turn the world upside down for his Christ. Incarcerate him too close to home, and he will turn Caesar's household upside down as well. This here is a word of encouragement to the Philippians in the midst of their present struggle. The word of life to which they hold firm has already penetrated the hearts of the empire. That's the power of the gospel. That doesn't happen, right? Unless God decides to do it another way, but God decided to do it through Paul's imprisonment. Darth Vader thinks he's got it all right. He's got it all sorted out. But there among the ranks are those who trust, right? The rebellion. Christ 
is saving through Paul's imprisonment people in Caesar's household. Don't miss that. That's his reason number one. The direct result of his imprisonment is that God is saving people. That the, that the, uh, the imperial guard knows Jesus and people in Caesar's household are getting saved. He gives a second indirect result. That maybe well, What's going on outside of prison? Verse 14. Flip back. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So as Paul suffers for the sake of Jesus in prison, and he writes things and says things to the people who come to visit him, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I consider all else rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus. And they're like, you're in chains, man. You're suffering, man. You might die, man. It's worth it. This is the most beautiful thing that I could have ever given my life away to. As he does that, all the brothers and sisters there in Rome become like super emboldened. This is worth living for. This is worth dying for. This is worth shaping my entire life around. I want to live my life as an example of this gospel. I want to talk about this gospel out of my mouth, right? That's the result. An emboldenment of those people. And back in verse 12, he says to the church of Philippi, I want you to know about this. And echoing down to Mercy Village Church today, I want you to know about this so that we too can be emboldened. So that when it doesn't seem like walking in the way of the gospel is worth it, we have people like Paul, other people who we've watched suffer while clinging to Christ to remind us that it is worth it to follow Jesus. And so that's what he he says, so there's two things that you should have picked up on already. One of them is going to get fleshed out even more deeply next week. And so I'm just going to note it here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to flesh it out because Paul spends time fleshing it out next week. Living a life transformed by the gospel is worth more than life itself. Next week, he's going to say to live as Christ, to die as gain. We're going to see it. It's worth more than any other pursuit that you can imagine. It's worth more than the worst thing that you could possibly think happening to you. It's worth more than all of that. We'll see that next week. And there's a certain boldness that should come with that. But what I'm praying we see today is that your suffering can't stop the gospel. In fact, your suffering can actually serve to advance the gospel. Paul's suffering is the catalyst of all sorts of boldness and transformation. So how's your suffering panning out right now? I don't know. Right? Like Paul got to see it. Sarah, my bride and I were talking about the sermon this week. She's my sermon prep assistant. Anything good I say is from Jesus, and it's run through the filter of my wife. So... Um, she goes, I wish I knew. Like Paul gets, to, he's pretty clear. He's got a bullet list of some things that God's doing through his suffering. He can check them off. Here's one. I can see it. Here's two. He's at least got two really good reasons. So Beth goes, I wish I knew. Wish I could see it. John Piper has this, it's somewhat famous quote, if you've heard it. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them, or one of them, or zero of them. It doesn't mean God isn't working. God is at work in your life, and even in your suffering, God is at work. 
2 Corinthians 4, 17. Hear the Apostle Paul speak to you right now, if you're suffering. For this light, momentary affliction, you say, hold on, Paul. You don't know how heavy this is. That's not his point. He's not saying, he's not being flippant about your suffering. Give him a chance to finish his sentence here, okay? If you didn't have that question and I'm the only one that had it, then maybe I'm the one that needs to give him a chance to finish his sentence here. He says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says in comparison to what God is doing, it's heavy now. It leaves you breathless now. It leaves you questioning now. It keeps you up at night now. But one day, know this, you will look back and you will see what God has accomplished. You will. And on that day, you will realize that what he was accomplishing was infinitely beyond the comparison of your current suffering. That's what he's saying. That God is doing something in your suffering that will outweigh what you can even begin to imagine. He's doing something. Again, he's not saying, so be happy, right? Like, oh yeah, I love this suffering. It's so cool, right? My kids are in the hospital and we don't know what the, what the heck is wrong with them. This is great. I love it. Yay, Jesus, right? That's not, that's stupid. That's stupid. What he's saying is as heavy as it is, and it's heavy, as bad as it stinks, and it stinks. As much as you can hardly breathe when you you feel like you're suffocating in your suffering, he says, I get it. One time he says, we felt like we had received the curse of death. Paul says those words. He suffered. He knew what it's like to suffer. He's not afraid of, he's not going to sit there and call your talking about yourself. That's just hyperbole. God's at work. Just trust him. That's not his... He's saying as heavy as it is, and I know it's heavy. As much as it hurts, and I know it hurts. As sleepless as your nights are, and I know they're sleepless. What God is doing is so far beyond it that you can have hope in the midst of it. Thanks a lot. That really makes me feel better, Pastor. Right? Like not a single moment of your suffering is wasted. Well, let's put that on a t-shirt, right? Thanks a lot. Now I feel so much better. Paul isn't being flippant. I'm not either. Your pain is intense, sometimes unbearable, sometimes suffocating, but it's doing something. Yoked up with Jesus, your pain is doing something. Your loss is doing something. Estrangement in your life is doing something. Betrayal is doing something. Infertility is doing something. Death of a loved one is doing something. Cancer is doing something. Job loss is doing something. Slander is doing something. It is. I don't know what it is. Ache, hurt, weep. But don't only listen to that voice. Don't ignore the voice of grief. Don't ignore the voice of pain. Don't ignore the voice of doubt. But don't let them be the only ones speaking to you either. Because the gospel speaks a better word. Listen to that voice as well in the midst of your 
suffering, even imprisonment for preaching. Jesus is doing something. So that's his first point. Suffering cannot stop the gospel. In fact, it can actually serve to advance it. It's a curious conduit of gospel grace. Suffering. Number two, you wouldn't be expecting if we hadn't already read it, right? Because it doesn't feel like narcissism really ties in with suffering unless you've suffered because of narcissism, which maybe you have. You could kind of maybe tie them together in your own world. But his tie together is that in the midst of this, people are being emboldened to preach. And then here's what I see playing out as people preach. As they preach the gospel, emboldened by my imprisonment, he says, man, I, got, I keep losing my place. What is wrong with me? I'm suffering. <clears throat> Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says, yes, people are emboldened to preach by my imprisonment. But as that plays itself out, there's two types of people. There's those who are preaching it for the right reasons. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. There are those who have good motives in their preaching, and there's those who don't. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. In Paul's case, almost certainly, he's referring to people who are actually preaching the true gospel. Like, they're not like preaching some false gospel that's out of line with the Bible, but they're preaching it with bad motives. For whatever ever reason, they have animosity towards Paul. Maybe it's rooted in jealousy. Paul's had a successful ministry. Now he's in prison. I'm finally going to get my 15 minutes of fame. So I'm going to preach the gospel now, knowing that I've got a chance to be famous. Or I'm going to preach the gospel now, knowing that, right, people will come to me for the answers. Before everybody's like, I want Paul's opinion. He, he's the smartest one. Let me, right now, the. And so, for whatever reasons, right, for false, selfish reasons, they begin to preach the true gospel, but in doing so, they're taking full advantage of Paul's imprisonment. It's all the clues we have. But it shouldn't be hard for us to, to know that that's a real thing. That's a real thing. Don't trust this wooden box to cure people of narcissism. It doesn't. Can't. There's no special narcissism uh, destruction device in this. In fact, it often does the opposite. I'll testify to that. Can I be honest with you? Holding up this book and walking around doesn't cure narcissism. In fact, it can be a place where narcissism grows. I know that first because I know me. I've experienced it other places too. It's, I'm not the only one. You know that as well. But I felt it tug at me, tear at me, grip at me the desire to take this beautiful word of Christ and use it as a way to get what I want. And I'll repent of that again and again until the day I die. But I'm not the only one. You've seen it. We, 
listed podcasts in the very beginning. We listed names in the very beginning of people who fell susceptible to this. And not all of those names, or really any of them, I don't think, were preaching a gospel that was not true. Like if you listened to their sermons, you would have heard the true gospel. If you read their books, you would have read the true gospel. But they were leveraging it for themselves. There was manipulation. There was competition. There was selfish ambition. There was building a brand. Diminishment of others. Asking others to sacrifice for the advance of their mission, which they convinced you was Jesus' mission. Maybe you've got church hurt in your rearview mirror. I don't know all of your story. Maybe you've met that type of leader. You've been impacted by that type of leader. Hurt people hurt people. And I'm not making an excuse for narcissists, but narcissists are typically hurt people who hurt people. Just ordered a book. Uh, my wife found it, or Jackie Hill Perry recommended it. I'll say it was my wife, though. Um, when Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroote. It's a serious problem, and it's in particular just been exacerbated by our social media and internet world. It's a thing. It's a real, real thing. And if you haven't been hurt by a narcissist in ministry, thank God. And if it's ever me, just punch me in the throat. I'm serious. Let's not stand. Listen to what James says about it. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Yes, People are getting baptized. Yes, people are getting saved. Yes, people are reading the books and their lives are being transformed. But inside, it is a vile thing happening. As they exchange worshiping Jesus for worshiping themselves in the name of Jesus. It's evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those are your cures for narcissism, gentleness, peaceableness, repentance, purity, mercy, good fruit, impartiality, sincerity. Look for those things in your leader, not charisma, right? Look for the fruit of the Spirit. And with that comes a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you read, if you read James there, you'd be like, well, then those people who are narcissists are going to tank the kingdom. They're going to tank it. The gospel can't advance, right? Because fruit comes through those who are... Okay, you have to be able to hold these two things simultaneously as a Christian. Narcissism is condemned. It is disgusting. It is evil. God still gets the job done. Right? And he does. He gets the job done. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed 
in that I rejoice. Again, suffering stinks. Narcissism, evil. The gospel, stronger than both of them. The gospel cannot be stopped by either of them or any of them. We could come up with a... If we pass the mic around, we could come up with a thousand categories and subcategories of things that are curious conduits of gospel grace. I didn't think this would bring me closer to God, but it did. I didn't think I could learn the gospel from that person, but I did. I didn't think that this suffering would accomplish this in me, but it did. Curious conduits of gospel grace. So gently, but firmly, God will set everything right. The narcissist will receive what is coming to them. Your suffering will be put aside one day forever, but in the meantime, God is not hamstrung by it. So how do we respond? Two things, saints. First, rest in the gospel. Cling to it, okay? Whatever the conduit of gospel grace you find yourself in right now, whether it's suffering or there's someone in your, like, wounds in your life from a, a, a leader that has, you know, wounded you in the past, or add anything else on to all the conduits, whatever it is, in the midst of it, cling to the gospel. Again, not in that, the way that maybe some of you grew up hearing in church. Love Jesus and be happy, right? Like, that's, I mean, like, sometimes your hands will be frail as you cling to the gospel. Your voice will be hoarse while you cling to the gospel. Your nights will be sleepless while you cling to the gospel. Cling to the gospel. And if you're neglecting it right now, start small, but start now returning to it. I would just give one example of what I mean. The YouVersion app that you can get on any smartphone has a verse of the day feature, and it'll pop up on your phone. If you've been neglecting the gospel for whatever reason, and you might have a thousand like real reasons that I would relate to very deeply, so I'm, this isn't scorn, but if you've been neglecting it for whatever reason, start small, but start now. Even if it's just setting that reminder on your phone for that verse to pop up, and in the morning you read it. And then you read it again, and that's taking you 90 seconds so far. And then you read it again, you're at two minutes, and then you pray, God, I don't even know what this means to me. Make it make sense to me. I want to feel your presence. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to walk with you. Even if that's all you do, start there. Clinging to the gospel. Lay hold of the promises of God in that way. And then out of that, might we be lovingly bold in the gospel? Three categories, right? Preach it to yourself, right? You, you and if you don't view I really have a sentence I want to say I'm trying if you haven't suffered you might not know how much courage it takes to preach the gospel to yourself but it does if you've been at the bottom of where suffering can take you to you have to be bold even to t- preach the gospel to yourself do that you don't nobody talks to you more then you talk to yourself. Nobody. That's the voice that is most recurring in your ears, in your brain, is your own. Preach the gospel to yourself. Be bold in that. 
two, with each other. We all claim to be followers of Jesus. We love Jesus. We want to be shaped by the gospel, but sometimes we sit, and rightfully so, because we don't want to be jerks. We don't want to be pretentious. We don't want to... uh, We fail to speak the gospel to each other because we don't want to come off as pretentious or jerks. And I get it. Don't be jerks. Don't be pretentious. We don't got to beat each other over the head with the Bible. But if you're just going to fall back on that excuse forever and never enter into anybody's life with gospel truth and gospel realities and gospel encouragement, then you're missing it in the opposite direction. I'm missing it in the opposite direction. So we got to be bold to lovingly proclaim the gospel to each other. And then lastly is, is maybe what you would expect the most, those who are not Christians. And again, there's an art form of sorts there too, right? It's, we're not beating people over the heads with our Bibles, but we can't just sit back forever and never tell our friends and family these realities that have transformed our lives. So be intentionally finding a way to do it so that we can share the gospel with, with others. And the good news is the gospel can't be stopped. It can't be stopped by suffering. It can't be stopped by narcissism. The list could be even longer. So might we rest in this reality with love, saturated boldness for the kingdom? Might that be who we are? If you're not a Christian, right, if I'm going to talk about being bold to share the gospel, if you're not a Christian, trust Jesus today. You, you might have checked census or checked the census box for Christian your whole life and your parents did and your grandparents did, but you've never come to the place where you personally, before God said, I am a sinner who cannot save myself. But because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, I'm putting my faith in you to save me. That's all it takes. But a lot of us in an area like this can go our entire lives thinking that that's who we are because we've grown up in these circles. But we've never truly personally been transformed by those realities. If you're not a Christian, I would love to talk with you today about what it means to be a Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul told that Philippian jailer, and you will be saved. Trust Jesus today. Father, thank you so much that in our suffering and even in our church hurt, right, and and for some of us, we've experienced church hurt, and we've watched those leaders go on to keep ministries, the ministry's still happening, Maybe people are continuing to be hurt behind the scenes. But as the gospel is proclaimed, the kingdom is not failing. So meet us in our pain with both healing, please, and meet us in our suffering with relief. But in the meantime, meet us with a ability to cling to the gospel, that you are accomplishing your purposes, that you are doing 10,000 things. And we might only be aware of three, two, one, zero of them. Give us faith in your work. It's in the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.